you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and grab them and turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 will be in verses 45 through 56. And while you turn there, I have a question for you this morning. How do you feel about repetition? You know, doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, I was a fan of repetition until I had a friend convince me to do lunges every morning. Uh, They are not as fun as they may sound to be. Uh, Repetition is something we really can't get by in life. We can't get around it or away from it, right? So we... We set an alarm every single day at the, the same time. We, we go and eat the same meal. We go to the same job and do the same task, go to the same classroom, and, and do basically the same thing over and over and over again. We eat the same foods. We go to the same restaurants, same coffee shops. Wives keep telling their husbands the same things over and over again because we need it. Repetition is simply a part of life. A similar situation for us. I was reminded of this this summer. We would go as much as we could to the zoo because we were wanting to get out of the house because we felt like we were stuck often. And so we can get there as early as possible, avoid the heat. So we went to the zoo. And my wife is a big fan of repetition when it comes to our children. Every time we would go to the zoo, before we'd get out of the car, she would look at our kids and say, if you, uh, if you get lost from me, what is my number? And she makes our kids repeat it over and over and over and over again. Why? Because she is helping them to know if the worst thing happens, here is what you got to know. This is essential for you to know this. To get back to me, you need to remember this. Repetition in this sense could be life-saving. You see, parents repeat the same things over and over again to their children, not to bore them, but to bless them. See, repetition helps us see what's most important. Repetition helps us to see what is actually essential. And the the Gospel of Mark has shown us that the Gospels are very repetitive. They keep telling us, in particular the Gospel of Mark, which we've been studying, over and over and over and over again who Jesus is. Because it is essential that we get this right It is of eternal significance that we fully comprehend who Jesus is. That he is not only the Messiah, the the promised Messiah of old, the, the Davidic king that God said would come and establish his rule and reign, but he is God himself. And so from our passage this morning, along with uh, the gospel writer Mark, I want to convince you that Jesus is actually God. Though you may know this truth, I'm certain you need to hear it yet again. And I pray that through messages like this one, that none of us in this room would ever bore of hearing that Jesus is God. So if you have your Bible opened and you're at uh, Mark chapter 6, please follow along with me as I read verses 45 through 56. This is what Mark wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat and and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished. For they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land, to the Genesaret, and more to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages and cities or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. From the Gospel of Mark, from this passage in particular, I want to convince you there are two reasons why you should believe that Jesus is God. Mark gives us two reasons why you and I and everyone should believe that Jesus is God. Number one, only God can walk on water. Verses 45 through 52. And number two, only God can heal. Verses 53 through 56. Number one, only God can walk on water. And number two, only God can heal. Let's look at point one now. Only God can walk on water. Here in verse 45, right after the miraculous event where Jesus takes the the five loaves and the two fish and he feeds over 5,000 people, Mark tells us that Jesus immediately makes his disciples get into the boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's hard to understand the sense of urgency that Jesus has here from the English translation. But Jesus was not making a recommendation of the disciples. Have you considered going to the other side? No, he commands them to go. For the situation had become pretty chaotic because of the crowd. See, according to John's gospel account of the feeding of 5,000, the people were so amazed and so in awe of Jesus that they were trying to seize him, take him by force, and make him king. And Jesus sees it and he dismisses the disciples so they would not get caught up in the frenzy and he commands them to go to the other side while he dismisses the crowd. And in verse 46, Mark tells us that after the the crowd leaves that, that Jesus goes upon the mountain so that he can get alone and he can pray. Mark throughout his gospel mentions three times that Jesus gets alone to pray. And each time there's something significant that's either happened or about to happen. Uh, The first time is in Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Everybody wants him, he's growing in popularity, and Jesus is alone, and he's praying. The second time is our passage here in Mark chapter 6. And the third time is chapter 14, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's betrayed and right before he's crucified. Jesus here, he gets alone to pray. Why? Because prayer informed and shaped his life. It fueled his life and his love for the work that God had given him to do. How fitting is it that thousands of people were seeking to to take Jesus and force him to be king, and he gets alone to pray. And he's not going to the Father to say, hey, can I consider doing what they want me to do? 
I mean, I am kind of great. I would bless the people. No, he's getting alone with the Father, not because he's impressed by people, because he's reminded and he's reminding himself of his mission, that his kingdom is not of this world. It's almost as if he's saying to them quite the opposite. I've not come to do what you want me to do. I've come to do what the Father has entrusted me to do. And I will do all that he's commanded me to do. Jesus is not swayed or impressed or flattered by the motives and schemes of men. He truly is the faithful son. His kingdom would not come because men thrust him upon a throne. His kingdom would come because men thrust him upon a cross. He did not come in his first coming to rule, but to die. And no one would stop him from his mission. Prayer shaped and informed Jesus' life. It was a refuge for Jesus. It was where he found strength and encouragement to do and be faithful with all that God had given him to do. When your life is chaotic, what's the thing that you run to for refuge and comfort? When your life feels out of sorts, feels crazy, feels like everyone wants your attention and time, where do you go to for refuge? Well, brothers and sisters, for Jesus, prayer and time with the Father was that refuge. What kind of church would TRBC be if we all prayed like the Lord Jesus Christ? What kind of people would we be that instead of running to our bedrooms to, to take a nap or instead of running to go do X, Y, and Z or go work out or read a book or get on our phones and scroll Instagram reels, what kind of people would we be that when life felt chaotic, we went to be with God in prayer? Oh, may we be that kind of people. May we encourage each other to be people who pray even when life feels crazy. Our schedules and the challenges of our lives and the demands of our lives should not keep us from prayer, but should cause us to run to God in prayer. That's what Jesus does here. He sets an example for us in this way. And Mark tells us in verses 47 and 48 that while Jesus prayed, while the disciples were struggling yet again without him. Look down in verse 48. It, it tells us that they were not making the progress they thought they might be able to make without Jesus. It says they were making headway painfully, meaning they were getting whipped by the wind. They were overcome and tormented by the waves yet again. Doesn't this sound familiar to you? Mark chapter 4, 35 through 40, we heard a wonderful sermon from Ben Robin. If you've already listened to it once, I think you'll be really benefited. Listen to it again. It's so encouraging. But there we saw that, that Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. He leads them into the storm. He is taking a nap. And yet, it seems like the disciples are about to lose their lives. They're terrified and afraid. It feels like water is going to overcome the boat. They wake Jesus up and he gets up and he speaks. Says, peace be still. And the storm stops. And here... In Mark chapter 6, they're right into the same exact situation they were in, but in worse shape. Because Jesus is not in the boat. They're terrified and all alone. Now, how did the disciples get into this situation to begin with? Have they gone prematurely? Because they got tired of waiting on Jesus. He was taking too much time that they needed to get to the, to the next assignment. Have they been presumptive? Have they disobeyed Jesus? No, it's quite the opposite. The reason while they were in the storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee is because they had obeyed Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, it is often the case that your following of Jesus to lead, will lead you to places where you feel just like the disciples. Alone, afraid, like you have no help and no hope, and even that you might die. And yet, Jesus sees you. That's what's amazing about what, what happens here in this moment. We see that, that Jesus is not far off from them, but he, he sees them. You see, Jesus sends us into storms, not because he's cruel, but because he's kind. Jesus, I don't think, delights in seeing his people suffer. No, he wounds us, certainly, but he, he wounds us not to hurt us, but to heal us. Jesus will often send us into the storms to expose things about our own heart. To show us more of our heart clearly to ourselves and better yet, to show us more about himself. Because had you not been in those circumstances or that situation, there's just things you wouldn't know about God. So it's often the case that, that Jesus, he, he leads us into these storms to rid us of self-reliance, to, to rid us of love of the world, and to cause us to find hope, love, and confidence in him and him alone. It's often the case that Jesus leads us into storms so he can show us more about himself. What was Jesus seeking to show to his disciples here? We see it in verses 48 through 51. You look there with me now again. Mark records in, in uh, verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. So Jesus is alone praying, and clearly he prayed for a long time. For the fourth watches of the night is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And he looks up from his prayer, and he sees his disciples struggling. They are overpowered yet again. And did you notice Jesus' response? He is not angry. He doesn't look at them and see them disappointed. He doesn't yell from the land, row harder. Brothers and sisters, when you feel like you are in the boat rowing as hard as you can and you feel like you're making little progress, you are seeking to be as faithful as you possibly can to all that Jesus has entrusted to you, Jesus is not looking down from the land saying, row harder. Jesus is not that domineering master who's always disappointed in your performance. He's not looking at you today saying, why aren't you doing more for me today? That's not who he is. No, he looks not at us with anger, but with compassion I think that's why Mark says he saw them Jesus sees his own not with a condescending eye but a compassionate eye and we see the compassion of Jesus because why he comes to them it'd be one thing if Jesus saw them and said this would be a good lesson for them no no Jesus comes to their rescue they're fighting for their lives, and Jesus runs to save them. How did Jesus come to them? By boat? No. By sandbar. Did the Sea of Galilee look like our lovely Benbrook Lake? 
where they're somewhere in the middle and Jesus is like, oh, there's a sandbar. I'll just walk over there and I'll jump into the boat. No, that's not how the Greek reads. Jesus walked upon the water. And to be very clear, the Sea of Galilee is something like 150 to 200 feet deep. So there's no sandbar there. No, the only way to read this text is Jesus got on the water and he walked to them. Think about this. The thing that was afflicting his disciples' lives, he walked upon. What the disciples were being overcome by, the thing that looked like it was going to take their lives, Jesus leverages for his own glory. Doesn't that sound like how you got saved? We were overcome by sin and death, making no progress of our own. And Jesus sees us and he comes to us and he trods upon sin and death when he walked out of the grave. Jesus sees his own and he comes to their rescue. He could have found other ways to get to them. But he chose to walk on water. If you're here today and you have a hard time believing in the miracles of the Bible, like Jesus feeding the 5,000, or Jesus walking on water, or Moses parting the Red Sea, or, or Jonah and the great fish, I would encourage you to stare at the resurrection and work your way backward. You see, for Jesus, walking on water, feeding the 5,000, healing the sick, and even raising the dead, that's the easy thing. No, the greater thing is that he would overcome your sin through his resurrection. That he would make you right with God through his life, death, and resurrection. So if you can believe that the only way for your sins to be forgiven is through Jesus' life and resurrection, oh, the rest is easy. That's the, the hard thing. That was the hard thing for him to do. Everything else was very basic. Brothers and sisters, if Christ is not raised, we of all people should be pitied. But praise be to God that he's raised. So we can rest assured that it is all certainly true. I want to encourage you, the hope we have in this life isn't how much we understand God. How much we understand how he's working in the world. We just saying whatever my God ordains is right doesn't mean we understand what he's doing. Oftentimes it's the case that we don't. The assurance and the hope that we have is that Jesus paid it all. Our faith is in that. That when we stand before him on the last day, we are saying I'm trusting in what he did. Not how much I understood. Jesus sees his disciples and he has compassion upon them. And he comes to them by walking on water. Now, there's a danger when you read the Gospel of Mark, because Mark is so quick. He is saying so much, and basically what he says is very significant stuff, and he leaves it up to the reader to discern the significant meaning. So there's a danger that you could read it so fast that you could, you could miss the whole thing. So he leaves it to the reader to do a little more digging. So here in verse 48, he says he walks on water, and then he includes, he meant to pass by them. Now, why is that significant? Why does it even matter? I mean, why, why would he say he saw them and he's going to come to them and yet he meant to pass by them? Because Mark is telling us something about Jesus. And better yet, Jesus is telling us something about himself. Because in the Old Testament, the way that God would display his glory and bless his people is he would pass by them. You go back to Exodus 33, as Moses is about to lead the people from Sinai into the land. Moses says, I will not go up unless your presence goes with me. And God says, my presence will go with you. And he says, let me see your glory so that I know I have found favor in your sight. And how does God show Moses his glory? He puts him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by him. 
He proclaims his glory. He lets them see his glory, and he proclaims his name. So Jesus passing by, he is displaying his glory to his disciples, saying that God has come down to save his people. He passes by to, to bless them and to show them his glory. Jesus could have gotten into the boat. He could have rowed across. He could have found other ways, but he chose to walk on water. You know why? Because only God can walk on water. We just read it earlier in Job 4. Job is trying to discern the mystery of God and how God works in the world. And he says in verse 8, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. God alone walks on the waves of the sea. In verse 11 he says, Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. The disciples were just like Job. God is trampling on the waters and they do not perceive they do not understand what he's doing. They're so startled. They're, they were so shocked. They thought he was a ghost. Couldn't believe it. Mark tells us they saw him and they were astonished and they were terrified. And yet, does, how, how does Jesus respond? He doesn't say, you should know better already. I've already told you who I am. No, he looks at them, these terrified people, and he says, be not afraid. It's me. And better yet, in the Greek, you know what Jesus says to them? Take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. Jesus looks at those terrified disciples and he he says, fear not, for I am is here. The same I am who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, who came down to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt, had now come down to heal and save his people once and for all. They need not fear, for I am here had come. One commentator said, if, John, if in John Jesus declares himself to be God, in Mark he shows himself to be God. Mark is not shy about his intent. He, he's wanting us to know that Jesus wasn't a mere carpenter. Wasn't just a prophet, a good moral teacher. No, he is God because he does what God alone can do. Mark is trying to convince you, believe it, see it, trust it. It's absolutely true. And to further his point, he goes on a little more. He says, he tells us that when Jesus got in the boat, what happens? The storm stopped. It ceased. In Mark 4, he speaks in the wind and waves, obey him. But here Jesus' presence causes the storm to stop. He truly is the prince of peace. Brothers and sisters, this shows us that life with Jesus is way better than life without Jesus. Life with Jesus is way better than life without Jesus. On our own, we are helpless and hopeless against the winds and waves of this life. We have no hope without him, but with him, we have peace. Brothers and sisters, Jesus promised that for his children, he would be with us to the end of the age. I know some of you don't feel that right now. But can I tell you this as someone who's standing outside of the storm of your life? It's true. Just keep holding on and you just keep rowing and he's going to come back one day and get in this boat and he's going to fix everything. One day he will return and every storm will stop in your life forever. And you will only know peace for all of your days because Jesus will be with you. In the meantime, while we wait, let us not be like the disciples. If you're here and you have a hard time believing the validity of the New Testament or the Gospels, 
if the apostles or the 12 disciples were seeking to make this whole thing up, my assumption is they would make themselves look a whole lot better than they do. All that they've seen, and yet they cannot, they cannot believe. You would assume at this point, when they saw Jesus walking on the water, they would say, of course he can do that. Of course he can walk on water. Why, why, why wouldn't we believe that to be true? And it was quite the opposite. Mark connects it to the previous, or the previous story, the feeding of 5,000, verse 52. He says, for they did not understand. They were astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What is he saying? Mark is saying at this point the disciples had seen all they needed to see to know who Jesus was. They needed nothing else. And yet they did not see. Why? Because their own unbelief. Brothers and sisters, the question is not, has Jesus shown us who he is? But will we believe him? Will we trust our doubts? Or will we trust Jesus? So it's like this this past summer. Uh, one of the few things we could do in the crazy hot heat and sit beside go to the zoo was go to our neighborhood pool. Our kids love to swim. Our oldest two are really good swimmers, and they swim as much as they can. And Lydia, our third, well, she's trying. She's trying to get there. And she wears a little life jacket called a puddle jumper. You know, she looks like a big snowman that she can't get out. Like, she's just stuck in it. And she will swim all day long in the puddle jumper. But throughout the summer, I was trying to convince her, just take the puddle jumper off. I will hold you, and I'll teach you to swim just like your sisters. And every time I said that, she would look at me like I was a fool. Like I could not have said something more foolish. She found more security and comfort in her puddle jumper than me. She thought that her, she thinks that her puddle jumper is a more secure place than her own father. And she does not realize that if she would trust me, she would no longer need that puddle jumper. Brothers and sisters, when life gets crazy, when we are overcome with stress and anxieties and we feel like we can't make it, we will all be tempted to trust our own version of the, the puddle jumper. But Jesus is better. Don't run to the things of this world. Don't, don't seek to find refuge in anything else but in Jesus. Your heart will seek to find some worldly comfort that will give you ease, but it cannot give you the comfort that Jesus brings. He has placed you in the storm most likely so that you would no longer trust yourself or any worldly good, but that you would trust in him and him alone. And when you finally trust in him, oh, you realize how foolish fear is and how there is no safer place to be than in the arms of Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus is God. Because only God can walk on water. Only God can do the things that Jesus did. Only God can lever the, or leverage the afflictions and the trials of our lives for his glory and our good. So today you should believe that Jesus is God because he walked on water. And not only that, Jesus does what God can only do. He heals. Point two, you should believe that Jesus God is God for only God can heal. You see this in verses 53 through 56. Read there with me again. It says this, When they had crossed over, the, over, they came to the land at the Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized them and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to whatever they heard, wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick 
in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So Mark here uses this section almost like a conclusion, a summary to this whole section that he's in, these last few verses. But if you're not careful, you'll miss there's so much encouragement and meaning in these last few verses. They cross over the Sea of Galilee, and as soon as they get out of the boat, they are confronted by the poor and the needy and the sick. It says they immediately recognized him. Now, how ironic. You see, the, the religious leaders, Mark has shown us, the religious leaders and teachers of the day, they didn't recognize Jesus. Jesus' own family didn't see who he actually was. And his disciples who saw him do miraculous wonders and miracles, they didn't see him, but yet it was the poor and sick and needy who see Jesus. Those who had nothing at all, they were the ones who saw Jesus. And not only do they see Jesus, they run around the regions there to tell other people about who he is, that they should come and see Jesus as well. You see, when it comes to Jesus, anyone's welcome. But there's a catch. See, Jesus is counter to our culture. Jesus doesn't invite the brightest and best. He's not impressed by resumes and salaries or degrees. He doesn't care how much you've done in the world or how much men praise you. No, the ones who get to come to Jesus are those who see that they have no hope without him. The only ones who don't get Jesus are the self-righteous, the self-assured, and the proud. If you don't see you need Jesus, you'll never come to Jesus. The fact that it's the poor, the sick, and the needy are coming is a declaration that the kingdom is for the poor, the sick, and the needy. That if you see that you've come to your own end, that you've pursued the winds and the waves of this world and left empty-handed, Jesus is saying, if you'll come to the end of yourself, you are welcome at my table for all eternity. He's not impressed by what we do. He's impressed by our posture that we would come to him and say, I have no hope, no life without you. One of the greatest challenges of being back in the South is how many people identify as a Christian. Now, that may sound odd coming, as a, coming from a pastor. You're like, don't you want everyone to, to say they're a Christian? Yes, I do. I want everyone in Fort Worth to be a Christian. That's my desire. I want them to know Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus. The problem in Fort Worth is who's defining what it means to be a Christian? There's so many people who cling to different things as their assurance that they're a Christian. Some were baptized as an infant, yet they've never really followed Jesus in their life. Others were, they prayed a prayer when they were very young and then baptized, but they've never really pursued the Lord in his church, so they think that makes them a Christian. Other people think it means to be a Christian if you just do a lot of good to your neighbor. You know, Jesus did good, why don't we do good too? There are other people who say, well, I, I like the teachings of Jesus, so I'm, a, I'm definitely a Christian, but I also think there's, there's many ways to heaven. See, the problem is not all of those things can be true, and according to the Bible, none of those things are true. There's good news for you today. If you want to find out what it means to be a Christian, the Bible has already told us. See, what it means to be a Christian is that you repent of your sins and you place your faith in the Lord Jesus for salvation. To repent means that you would agree with God that you have sinned and done wrong against him. That you've lied and lusted and been angry and stolen, been disobedient to authority and to parents and, and taken God's name in vain. And you agree with God that because you've done these things, you deserve to be judged by God. 
But repentance is not only agreeing that you've done wrong, repentance is agreeing that Jesus did right on your behalf. That you see that, that Jesus came, that God made a way for you not to be judged through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so you turn from your old life and you trust that Jesus' work was sufficient to cover your sins. And now the evidence that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus is now you're seeking to follow him and live the new life that he saved you for. And when you die and you stand before God on that day, you won't stand there saying, look at all the good that I did. That won't work. You'll stand there saying, I have done no good. The only hope that I have is in him. I trust that his work is finished. And apart from him, I have no hope. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I say it so plainly and so often because I don't want anyone to be confused. I pray that through Trinity River Baptist Church and all the gospel preaching churches in Fort Worth that the gospel will be so clear that no one ever would be confused about what it means to be a Christian again. And if you're here today and you're learning more of like you, that you were leaning on other things to make you right with God, I would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. I'll be at the back of the room right there. Please come in and talk to me. And members of TRBC, I want you to know this is a safe place to bring non-Christians because I promise you that every single Sunday, to the best of my ability, unless something crazy happens, I'm going to tell sinners how to have their sins forgiven. So this is a safe place to bring non-Christians if you want them to know Jesus and come to the Lord. Mark tells us that the sick and needy, they come to Jesus and they implore to Jesus. They pled with him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment and be healed. And Mark says, as many who touched the fringe of his garment, they were healed. And to clarify this, there's nothing special about Jesus' garment. It's not like we go dig it up and find it somewhere. We can just have people touch it and be healed. It had nothing to do with the garment. It had something to do with the one who wore the garment. The reason they were healed is because God had come down in human flesh to save and heal his people. That's the reason, because God was among them, and they trusted that he alone could heal them, and he did. And did you notice who brought the sick? It said that the citizens of the city, of the countryside, of all the regions, they would take their sick, and they would lay it in the streets as Jesus walked in the marketplace, just hoping that if if they could just touch the fringe of his garment, they would be healed. And he did it. Brothers and sisters, who is it in your life, if you heard that Jesus was walking through the streets of Fort Worth, that you would bring and just lay at Jesus' feet in hopes that if they touched his garment, they would be healed? What keeps you from pursuing those people like this? Is there anyone in your life that you've given up hope on that you think they're too lost, too far gone for Jesus to heal? This passage is a declaration that no one is too far gone. Jesus is able to heal those who come to him for healing. For salvation, for for life. That's what Mark is declaring here. Let us be a people who never give up on bringing those in our lives to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I know that you can heal them. If you would, please do it. Because if he can work through the fringe of his garment, he can certainly work through the, the prayers of his people. Let's trust it and believe it's true. Mark is being emphatic. You should believe that Jesus is God because he does what only God can do. Only God can walk on water. Only God can heal the sick. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Ben, we know this truth. We've heard it time and time and time again. It's even in our statement of faith. 
reminds me, uh, when I first met Mark Dever, who's one of my heroes, worked for him for a few years, I got to know him in 2019, he invited me out to do a weekender, and he encouraged me to come do one of his application grid luncheons, where you sit and you talk through his sermon, and I was thrilled. I had wanted to get to know Mark forever, and I'm like, I'm going to get to sit with Mark Dever and learn how he preaches a sermon. I'm going to get to see how the sausage is made. And so we go, and we sit, and I'm, he, he gives out, he's going to give us out his outline. I'm like, I can't wait to see how foolish I am and how great this thing is. It's going to be amazing. And it was on Matthew chapter 11, and I'll never forget, Mark's, or, uh, Mark's outline was this. Who is Jesus, who is John, and who are you? And I was so disappointed. I mean, here's Mark Dever with a PhD from Cambridge. I'm like, I feel like I'm going to learn so much. And I, I couldn't help myself. I was like, Mark, you're in Matthew chapter 11. Haven't you already answered who is Jesus? And he said, yes. And if you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to tell them every single week, this is who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is. If you were bored with the fact that, that Jesus is God, the rest of the Bible is not going to be any fun for you. I mean, have you considered at the very beginning of our New Testament are four Gospels that are saying the exact same thing. It's almost as if God says, look at this, stare at this, do not forget this. It's almost as if God is that parent sending his children out into the world and says, when you feel lost and afraid, look at him. Do not forget him. He will not forget you. Brothers and sisters, as you go out into your lives, as you leave every Sunday, you go to your jobs and your problems, the thing you need to remember more than anything else is that Jesus is God. That as the world tries to tempt you and tell you that Jesus isn't who he says he is, you need to know and trust that he is who he says he is. For he alone can do what God does. When temptations and trials this week come for you and they seem to speak a better word, you need to remember that Jesus is better. Why? Because Jesus is God. When you get that cancer diagnosis, you need to know that cancer will not have the last word because Jesus will, for he is God. And when you stare death and the grave in the face, you need to know that Jesus has overcome the grave, for he is God. The truth we need to cling to as we journey towards heaven is that Jesus does what God only can do because he is God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who is God in himself. Father, we, we praise you that you in your mercy have told us what is essential, what we need to know to love you, to be made right with you, and to live a life pleasing to you. Father, I pray for every person here that is struggling in the Christian life, who feels like they're just not going to make it. Father, would you just draw near to them in this moment through your spirit and remind them that Jesus is worth it because he is God? Father, for those among us here who've been confused for their whole life about what it means to be a Christian, may you, through this message, through this passage, may you confront them to see that the only way for us to be made right with you is through Jesus. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us all as we journey towards heaven to not forget who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's yet to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.